I was in a guitar shop once and they had one. It was in like great shape. It was from like the probably early 70s. I remember playing it, being like, oh man, this thing's so cool. I'm going to buy this. And I was like, why the fuck am I going to buy an electric sitar? What in God's name am I going to do with this? <laughs> Hello and welcome to another week of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where lifelong musicians and friends break down classic albums. We research the artists, we tell the stories behind how those albums got made as described, this list of albums as described in Robert Dimery's book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. These albums, of course, are some of the most influential of all time. They have a lot right with them. They also have a lot to make fun of. So no worries if you're unfamiliar. We're going to play lots of musical clips. We're going to guide you along this journey. And fair warning, we are going to have some laughs at this artist's expense. If you turn this on, if you are, in fact, a connoisseur of dad rock, we're going to poke some fun at this band. (laughs) We're going to tell you what we love and why we love it, as well as what makes no sense and why. My name is Rob. I've been obsessed with the liner notes of every record since I was a kid, and I'm excited to dive into a band that famed modern producer Mark Ronson once commented on. No other band allowed groove and intellect to coexist as seamlessly. Of course, we're talking about Steely Dan and their debut album, Can't Buy a Thrill, Let's play a clip now so you can get in the headspace we've been in all week. Let's play a clip of the biggest and first hit single off of the record. It's also the opening track from the debut record by Steely Dan. It's called Do It Again. think everyone here is familiar with Steely Dan. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you can probably guess maybe where this conversation is going to go. But I think there's a little bit to nitpick here as well. We're going to throw it around the room, have some introductions of who's in the studio tonight by way of a tweet length review. And I am going to throw it first to my buddy, Phil. Hey guys, Phil here this week. Excited to be covering Can't Buy a Thrill. And I'll have to admit, I was a surprised to find that this was the first record by Dan. I thought Pretzel Logic was first, but we'll cover that more later. My tweet length review is 
Dimery blows it again. Can't buy a thrill better than Royal Scam. <laughs> Only a fool would say that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well done. Well done. Nice. Let's keep that going around the horn. Let's send it over to Adam. I kind of want to hear Steely Dan do Uptown Funk now. You got me on that Ronson thing. I feel like there, there's a universe where they actually wrote that song. But anyway, this is Adam. And my quick tweet is that this album caused me to do two things back when I started listening to it. Buy a Proco rat pedal and start listening to more Steely Dan. I regret one of those decisions. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> okay, let's keep it going around the room. Marty, what say you? What's up, everybody? I did know that this was their first album, but uh, I also agree that it, this is not their best album. Here's my tweet-length review. Can't Buy a Thrill would not have achieved the level of musical excellence that it did without the great guitar playing on the album. There are just so many excellent, sick guitar solos on this record. So you have to give credit to the different soloists, Skunk Baxter, Denny Diaz, and Elliot Randall. Nice, nice. Yeah, hard to disagree with that. And my tweet length review is appropriately pedantic since we'll be covering these pseudo-intellectuals. My tweet about Can't Buy a Thrill is, <laughs> Jazzbo misanthropes moonlight from their day jobs as pop schlock songwriters to create the smoothest band of the 70s. Although this debut shows them searching around a bit for a single style direction, it's still a wildly confident effort that presages the many more polished albums to come. Robert Criscow joining us on the call today. Thank you, Robert. <laughs> That's right. There's a lot of $2 words in there. I understand. Yeah. I, I crafted it purposefully. <laughs> on the Scrabble board, yes. So, listen, let's let's talk general impressions. I don't think this is a first listen for anybody, as was just mentioned in the tweet-length reviews, but how was the week? Anything surprising to you revisiting this? Any new insights? Adam, let's kick it to you first. Yeah, I actually think I liked the back half of the album better. So a, a couple takeaways this week. First one was that I found myself that listening to tracks 6 through 10 was easier than 1 through 5. I don't know if maybe just 1 through 5 I've been hearing on classic rock radio my whole life. Second was, I guess, the rediscovery of David Palmer, the other singer here. He is fantastic. And I actually really like his voice. He's like kind of the antithesis of Fagin, but on a lot of these tunes, man, it, it makes sense. And Rob, you would tell the story better. Is Palmer the guy on the Midnight Midnight Express performance? Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we'll we'll get to David Palmer <laughs> to and the lead singer role in the band because it's kind of an interesting story. And I even have a more recent update after watching a Fagan interview from the last couple of years. I can only imagine. I bet Fagan really loves that guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I thought. I was re-surprised. I was familiar with the record. I had it in my head that it was one of the spottier efforts by Steely Dan, which makes sense for a first album, right? It's not their best album. I think we would all readily agree to that. It might not even be their fourth best album, depending on who you ask. But that said, there is quite a lot of Steely Dan-ness. They sound like a band that has already locked into a lot of the elements of what they want to do, and they are accomplishing it fairly consistently. So that was that was just surprising, you know, going through it on a deep listen this week. Yeah, Rob, I, I agree with what, what you're saying about revisiting it. It was kind of a pleasant surprise. They're production masters, and you can kind of begin to see that with this record. The other thing I found when listening to this is that there is an album 
produced by Gary Katz by someone named Linda Hoover, and you might have researched this, but that's kind of the only other recording that they've been on before this album. Uh, and it has it, it features Becker, Fagan, and Skunk Baxter all playing on this, this woman's record. And if you go back and listen to that, you can kind of see where they're coming from, but this really brings it up, up to the next, next level. Well, that was another fun thing, and we're going to get to it in the background, that I uncovered some proto-Steely Dan recordings. There's the one you alluded to, Marty, that I don't think the Linda Hooper track, but I heard there was some licensing problem where it only got released very recently. It did. But as it happened, that exact song that they also wrote for Linda Hooper got covered by Barbra Streisand. So that was like their biggest claim to fame before they went in and, and made this record. But separately, as I put one of these songs on the focus list, they actually did a soundtrack together, and I had never heard that before. And so they both represent some level of proto-Steely Dan music that's kind of interesting for aficionados such as ourselves. I found myself kind of just doing a, a deep dive into the whole Steely Dan catalog this week. Maybe you all did as well, because of course I'm familiar with it, but I don't always every week listen to it. And something jumped out to me that I had never noticed before which is in the song FM. He says, give her some funked up Muzak. Yeah, yeah. And I realized he's describing his own band. That's what Steely Dan is. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> funked up Muzak. But, you know, I think a lot of this is, is contextual, right? So one of the things that I pulled out of the research was the attitude that Becker and Fagan had about the state of music at that time. And it was, it got clearer and clearer that they were they did have a very clear notion of what they were trying to achieve. Fagan said, you know, clearly they're both big jazz fans, but Fagan at the time was quoted as saying, there's no jazz in America. Now he's talking about 1970 or 1971. He's like, there's a considerable amount of electric experimenting, but that doesn't interest me. John Coltrane was a fantastic player, but he's responsible for leading people into making a terrible mistake. Wow. (laughs) So they, I think, saw jazz as it stood at that time because this is recall the end we're at the tail end of the classic jazz era the post-bop kind of era and we're moving into the wild like he said electric experimentation of miles davis the bitches brew in a silent way fusion all that stuff coming about but from fagan's perspective and it sounds like becker too they thought of it that was a dead end musically that's so interesting that they almost wanted to keep their feet in the past based on what they were growing up with. Because I I went back and re-listened to our Nightfly episode and revisited some of the research I had done from or about Fagan and how he grew up going to these jazz clubs when he was, you know, 14, 15 years old. And he absolutely loved that. So it's interesting what you're saying that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're saying they weren't necessarily looking forward, but they were reaching back and saying, we want more of this. I think they thought that the way forward was pop music fused with jazz more so than continuing down the arcane and esoteric jazz route that seemed to be going on in the jazz genre at that time i wonder how becker fagan felt about like some of the early michael jackson stuff like off the wall thriller and i'm not talking the hits i'm talking these like b-sides i'm thinking like what's the second track on thriller that's basically just like a hard bop song with like a bunch of 
synths on it. Like, I wonder I mean, what their take on that is. Fagan's kind of a notorious curmudgeon. Definitely. <laughs> yes. You'd have yeah. anything kind of I, say. I don't know if you have anything kind of say, but who knows? He's not spinning Michael Jackson records. He is a grump for sure. And we should say, just in case there's anyone who clicked on this who doesn't know Steely Dan, we're talking about Donald Fagan and Walter Becker, the key songwriting partnership and players that make up Steely Dan. And the band is built around them. They are accredited as the writers on all the tracks in Steely Dance catalog. The players kind of rotate around them through that catalog, but they had the concept for the band and they're, they're the main guys we're, we're talking about. And Donald Fagan takes over lead vocal duties on most of the tracks on this record. And then subsequent records, he is solely the lead vocalist, I would say, maybe with one exception where Becker sings. Let's, let's go into the background and then maybe that'll explain a little bit of how they got there. So Steely Dan met in the late 60s, Walter Becker and Donald Fagan met in the late 60s at college, at a place called Bard College in Annandale, New York. It's on the Hudson River, sort of upstate New York. And Fagan talks about how he was really underwhelmed by all the musicians on campus. There were a handful of them. He was one of the, he considered himself one of the most talented people on campus. And he was uh, of course he did. sort of a maestro who was pulling pickup bands together at that time. But he was generally underwhelmed by the level of talent he saw. And one night he was walking by a club and he heard someone inside playing guitar. And he assumed it was like a legit blues guy, like a Howlin' Wolf type person. Or maybe even that someone was playing a record really loud. And so he walked in and he saw Walter Becker with his red Epiphone guitar and it was sort of love at first sight. They started writing together shortly after. There, during that college period, there were tons of pickup bands, two-night engagements, things like that. Famously, I believe it's come up on the show before, one of those bands was called The Leather Canary and included a drummer named Chevy Chase. No way. Pre-Saturday Night Live Chevy Chase. I must have been absent on that episode. That's insane. <laughs> yes. Wow. All right. Yeah. And, you know, I heard Donald actually saying something nice about Chevy Chase in the modern area where I saw him on an interview show with Paul Schaefer, the keyboard player who was the longtime band leader for David Letterman. You might know him as. And Paul Schaefer would, of course, you know, he kind of is in that world of Saturday Night Live. And so he knows Chevy Chase. So he asked Donald about that. And Donald Fagan said, yeah, he was a good drummer. He had a good groove. He didn't have a lot of nice things to say about his own material, his own bandmates. <laughs> but when Chevy Chase came up, you know. Who is also a notorious asshole. That's right. That's right. right? He's so, the so one true. person who's. Yeah, I thought you were going to say something like, ah, oh, Chevy always knew where to get the best cocaine. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> Probably that too. But it is interesting to think that they, they crossed paths. This would be a few years before because Chevy Chase then went on the first season of Saturday Night Live in 1975 and became an overnight superstar, more or less, that year. But we're still a few years before that when Steely Dan are making and releasing these first records. I wanted to mention that Bard College is just this upper crust New York artsy place whose alumni include the Coen brothers and Jonah Hill and MCA from the Beastie Boys. There's a lot of, there's more names you would recognize. That all checks out. And I assume throughout this episode, you mentioned Annandale. Obviously, I'm thinking about the line in my old school yeah. where they mentioned Annandale. I assume the history of Steely Dan is going to be nothing but things that I pick out. And I'm like, oh, I've heard that in this song. <laughs> I've heard that in this song. I've heard that word in this song. Well, you're referring to my old school, which is on their follow-up, yeah. which is a song about Bard College, their old school. But I also learned this week that Ricky from Ricky Don't Lose That Number was a professor's wife that they were writing about. <laughs> nice. 
Okay, so they have some fun in college, and they decide after college to move to New York. They want to be professional songwriters. So the first thing they do, what does a professional songwriter, an aspiring one, do back in 1968 when they want to get a job as a songwriter? They go to the Brill Building, the famous Brill Building in New York. People like Carol King worked there and Burt Bacharach, and they were pretty much going door-to-door in an office building trying to get people to listen to their material. Weren't super successful, but on that particular office trip, they met one band that happened to also have a publishing company. The band was called Jay and the Americans. You might know them. They were kind of a vocal group from the late 60s. They have that song, Come a Little Bit Closer. You would definitely recognize. It's been on some soundtracks. In any case, they, they took them in. They gave them a job as the backing band. They said, come join the backing band for Jay and the Americans, who were this big touring act at the time. Damn. All right. Kind of the stuff they probably hated in reality. Very poppy. Very, think like a white version of the Drifters. That's sort of what Jay and the Americans (laughs) sound like. And this is a stupid question, but I assume Fagan is playing keyboards, right? Correct. And And Becker Becker was playing bass. Oh, and bass. Yeah, so Becker played both throughout the life of Steely Dan, but his primary instrument was bass, and he plays bass on Can't Buy a Thrill. Oh, I have a a bone to pick with him coming up (laughs) soon. All right, all right, sorry. Yes, I know that was confusing because I said Fagan discovered him playing guitar. He, He does play a bit of both, but I'd say bass is his primary instrument, and it's the instrument he plays on this record, and it's the instrument he played when they were touring, you know, and going around the country and getting 100 bucks a show. And all the time, they're working together, they're writing. They have these two notebooks that Donald Fagan talks about. The good stuff, which which they called the dynamite, and and the pop stuff, which they called the shit, that they had been writing together (laughs) since college. They had this big songbook. And so based on how cool they thought you were when they were trying to show their songs, they'd give you stuff from either book, right? Oh, wow. All right. While touring is where they meet a lot of the members that end up on, uh, band members that end up on this record. So it turns out Jeff Baxter a.k.a. Skunk Baxter, was in that band, as was the drummer, Jim Hodder, as was Denny Diaz, the other guitar player. And so they kind of all met up and had some mutual respect as as hired guns, if you will. And the next job they got was writing and recording a soundtrack album for a movie called You Gotta Walk It Like You Talk It or You'll Lose That Beat. Oh, that's way too long for a movie title. I'm sorry, guys. It's way too long, and I couldn't... I apologize to your audience. I couldn't bring myself to actually watch this piece of trash. But the, <laughs> but the soundtrack is kind of an interesting artifact. So I thought we would just play a snippet from what I think of as the most Steely Dan song from that soundtrack. It's called Dog Eat Dog. Any 
thoughts on this song? I thought this I thought this like really sounded a lot like Steely Dan. There are definitely some less polished elements throughout this soundtrack album, but here you can kind of see I'm almost surprised they didn't recycle this song later into into Dan material. I thought they did, or they just sold it to Vince Guaraldi because it sounds like a Peanuts song <laughs> from the Christmas <laughs> album. I, I that you know Vince Guaraldi came out earlier, but yeah, I was, was floored with this one. What stuck out to me about this song was, which I which I think is out of character with kind of like how straight Donald Fagan plays it and his whole persona is the weird like whooping and stuff he does at the end of the song. Kind of like it seemed kind of. Like he was getting a little wild, which you don't really see him do on on, on many of their recordings. Yeah, he seems really shy. We're going to get into the singing thing, right? But he seems really shy about singing. He definitely does not like his voice. I noticed even on that Paul Schaefer interview that I was just mentioning, this is within the last couple of years, that Paul was clearly trying to get him to sing little snippets of songs. And Fagan just absolutely refused to do it. That's funny. (laughs) I think that one thing that sounds very similar to later dance stuff is how the chorus sounds, the chorus harmonies, how they're stacked. I would agree that the verses are much more pedestrian. There's less interplay, rhythmic interplay with the instruments. It's kind of more boring and flat. But when it gets to those choruses, the way they stack that stuff up just really reminded me of the later stuff. So I thought it was a cool artifact. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Even some stuff on this album. There are some chorus choruses with the big vocals on this album that you're right. Sound, you can definitely see them being downstream, these songs being downstream of that. I'm kind of just wanted to bring it to everyone's attention because I didn't know about it before this week, and I consider myself a fairly major Steely Dan fan, so if you just can't get enough Dan. Right. <laughs> Was that the only song by them on the soundtrack that had the features? No, they wrote the entire soundtrack, wrote and performed the entire soundtrack. Okay. And yeah. The- In fact, if you go on Spotify now, it's just it's just credited to Becker and Fagan as the artist. And it sounds like also this was an opportunity. I didn't dig too deep into this record because we're talking about Can't Buy a Thrill, but I believe that Skunk is also on this record and Denny Diaz and Jim Hodder. They were kind of all floating around each other in this hired gun world trying to figure something out. Skunk Baxter had a little bit of a history where he had he had been in a band, and I only know this band from my dad mentioning it to me as a ridiculous 1960s band name. And he even he agreed that he's never listened to the band nor wants to. But Baxter played in a band called Ultimate Spinach. Ultimate Spinach, <laughs> totally. You you've heard Ultimate Spinach? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Adam's dad's a huge Ultimate Spinach fan. <laughs> well, I definitely remember seeing that album, and there's a song on there. I don't know if it's a cover, but. I took a glance at it. It seemed kind of like late 60s, hippy-dippy psychedelia to me. It doesn't, didn't seem super appealing. A little flower power, a little too much for me. But in any case, these guys were kind of lightly working musicians trying to make sense of it right in the early 20s. I wanted to mention, too, that I saw the anecdote that Skunk is so named because one night he was waiting for his friend to answer the door. He didn't answer the door fast enough, and he just started pissing on the door. <laughs> and then, of course, immediately the friend then opened the door and got piss all over his carpet. Jesus. And called him a skunk from then on. That's an appropriate origin story for that name. All right. Last skunk anecdote. This happens later. But did you guys know that he plays the lead guitar on Hot Stuff by Donna Summer? 
Definitely not. No way. Which, upon re-listen, is pretty hot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll... I, I had heard that he was like in NASA or something, or some sort of like bioweapon engineer something or other. Yeah, that was later. Yeah, he, he went back to school or something, and he went to work for missile defense, and he's credited with creating something. I think this is after he retired from music, maybe. But, okay, so let's continue on with Steely Dan. Let's stay, let's stay focused here. So... They kind of they knew each other periodically, and they were trying to find work. And as you can imagine, Becker and Fagan were getting pretty disillusioned with touring with a pop band. That wasn't really where they wanted to be. They really wanted to be songwriters and composers and to get paid for that. But when they were shopping around their songs, for the most part, people were turning them down and saying they're a little too weird, with some exceptions, like, like we mentioned, the one that ended up getting covered by Barbra Streisand. We'll put all that stuff on the playlist for you. But they run into this guy, Gary Katz, who believes in them, basically. He ends up being the producer on this record, and he helps them get a job working as pro songwriters for a company under ABC Records in L.A. called Dunhill. And so they relocate out there. It's apparently ABC at the time was one of the last record companies that also had an in-house songwriting division. And so they went to help help write songs there, and they Again, they quickly realized that it wasn't really what they wanted to do. So I suppose from that vantage point, since it was also a record label, they were able to pitch them, hey, how about we just make these songs ourselves? We can assemble the band. We know these cool guys that are based in New York or other places. Let's get them all together and let's make a record. And that's how Can't Buy a Thrill really came about. And they're like 24 at this point, right? Like Not even, yeah. Yeah, just about 24. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's funny. It sounds like a dream gig. Hey, come out to L.A. and be on our songwriting team. And they're like, well, I don't know. It's not really my thing. I kind of want... I mean, good for them, right? <laughs> they wound up making tons of great music, but... They went to Bard. They went to Bard. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Okay, what am I doing? Yeah, there's yeah, right. some, some power right. players coming out of there. Okay, I yeah. think that leads us to our favorite segment of the podcast. It's called By the Numbers. I have a little theme for you guys. Let's see if you can pick up on it. First number I want to throw out to you is three. Three is the number of weeks it took to record this record in an L.A. studio called The Village Recorder. That's it? Yes. And not only that, wow. but the band was barely rehearsed. They knew each other. They all knew they were capable, but they got together for only a very short amount of time and then banged it out in the studio. Damn. So... It's it is runs antithetical to what we think about Donald Fagan and Walter Becker being such studio nerds pouring over every single overdub. They said that Fagan was so neurotic and perfectionist in the studio that the band called him mother behind his back. You know, and I heard I heard this quote that I thought was interesting about Fagan saying why he loves the recording studio so much. He says it's a room where you have all this technology and toys. It's about that space age bachelor pad vibe. The studio satisfies those urges. No other humans around. What he's, a, he's what a odd guy. What a vampire muppet. Okay, next number. Next number I want to throw out to you. It's been alluded to already. Three, again, the number of lead singers on this record. So Fagan did not want to be the singer. He felt like he didn't have much range. He loved composing. He loved playing the piano. But he felt like singing was a job, and it sounds like he still feels that way, that that's the part that locked him into something he didn't particularly want to do. So initially what they did was they brought in a specific singer. They brought in this guy, David Palmer. 
he didn't come in until the third and final week of the recording sessions, which is why he's not on Jeez. that many of the songs. But in the early live shows, he sang everything. And and we've referenced it before, that Mid- Burt Sugarman's Midnight Special performance where this guy is out front for all the songs, for Do It Again and for Reeling in the Years, etc. But on the record, he only sings two tunes. But also, that, uh, from what I read, that wasn't a choice that Becker and Fagan made. Apparently, he was pushed onto them by ABC Records. They didn't know the guy. I got conflicting reports that they did not know the guy. It's true. Because I always heard that as well, what you said, Marty, that that Fagan didn't want it. What we always said about that clip is that Fagan just looks so pissed off that some other guy who is theoretically better looking, although they're all kind of goofy looking, to be honest. They, they, they are not handsome men. Is out in front singing his songs. But all the interviews I read with Fagan himself, he doesn't hint at that at all. He says, I hate singing. Right. I don't like it. I never wanted to do this. And I don't I don't like it now. I didn't like it then. <laughs> so it's a little <laughs> little odd. He was very reticent about it. But ultimately, and we should say, so one other thing is that the drummer sings one of the tunes. Jim Hodder ends up jumping on vocals for Midnight Cruiser on this album. Ah, okay. I thought that was Palmer as well, but okay. It's an, it's, it's... So three in total. I think what happened was eventually after they released this and it got sold well, as you'll see, and they toured a little bit, Fagan realized that no one else could get the attitude across in the vocal performance, which I think is accurate. You listen to those other guys, they might be a little more technically talented, especially David Palmer. He's got kind of a plaintive thing. We'll get into it when we talk about dirty work. But Fagan is able to get snark across, not just lyrically, but tonally. That's a good word to use for his voice, snark. I agree. I wanted to mention, too, since Adam in the pre-roll, you did allude to the fact that we covered Donald Fagan way, way back on, what was it, episode five, The Night Fly? Yeah, yeah. His very first solo record after Steely Dan broke up. And at that time, I recall we were having a debate with Tom, Tom who's not here, so we can throw him under the bus now, about (laughs) the optimism that was being expressed on that record. (laughs) That's right. And so it was just funny to me that I was watching this Paul Schaefer interview where they're both sitting at keyboards together and Donald mentions IGY and starts playing it and Paul Schaefer starts playing along. Paul's like, oh yeah, that was that super optimistic one. And Donald immediately corrects him. No, no, faux optimism, not real optimism. (laughs) And he goes all Andy Rooney on you. Exactly. Nothing is good. These people nowadays are so. Okay. I got one last number for you guys. You guessed it. It's three. That's the model number on a steam-powered strap-on sex toy that Steely Dan named their band after. <laughs> yes, that's Whoa! right. It's from I didn't realize it was steam-powered. Oh yes, <laughs> it's from an extended orgy sequence in William S. Burroughs' book *Naked Lunch*, and it is called the Steely Dan Three from Yokohama. Oh my god, that is fantastic! A, what a deep dive for them, and yeah, that that is a perfect origin story for your band name rob i know in the past we've talked about like what would you call your steely dan cover band and yokohama is pretty good (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's deep that's deep Deep, yeah okay guys we appreciate you all for listening for sharing this with your musically obsessed friends for leaving us reviews all of it all of it all of it means a heck of a lot to us and we mean that sincerely we absolutely love doing this every week and we want to keep doing it so Apart from those other things, 
We have a merch store set up with some t-shirts. It's a deal where Amazon lets you can buy one uh, and we get a royalty. So think of it like buying us a beer if you want one. And now we have, at the end of our listener request month, a new announcement. We have a new way for you complainers at home to help us out. We're officially launching a Patreon page. If you like what we're doing and you want to support us, check out the link in the notes for Patreon. Consider giving us five bucks a month. It's a small amount. Buy us a beer, like I said. We've avoided doing ad reads on the show, I should mention, because as podcast listeners ourselves, we feel like it interrupts and it's annoying and it just clashes with the experience a bit too much. But that said, please know that this show takes a significant amount of time and energy and even cash to put together every single week. So if you love what we do, consider that a good option to make us feel that love and i should be clear here we'll of course love you if you want to do that but nothing's going to change about the free podcast feed we're going to keep delivering the same content week over week our album reviews so freeze your thing hey that's cool too we just wanted to let you know we appreciate you regardless okay on to the release of can't buy a thrill this thing was released in november of 1972 an early reviewer called it a cross between crosby stills and nash and chicago that's, that's not terrible. It's if, not terrible, especially if yeah. what you're working with in 1972 is point of reference. That's yeah. And if you have David Palmer singing in your band, you know, yeah, yeah, kind of yeah. does the Neil Young thing a little bit. But that said, the opening single was "Doing It Again," which has Fagan on the lead vocal. So I feel like that that comparison is a little less apt for that song. But I know what you mean. I feel like I should point out that the title of the album is a reference to a Bob Dylan song. It takes a lot to laugh. It takes a train to cry. It's on Highway 61. It's the first line of the song where he says, can't buy a thrill. Just a little tidbit. They're really wearing their references on their sleeves kind of early and often. And I don't know, for any other avid podcast listeners out there, I thought it was interesting that their first ever live gig was at the Ice House in Pasadena, which is now a comedy club, a famous comedy club. It's been around for like 60 or 60 plus years Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've been there. They played their first live gig there as a six-piece. So 1972, so much music, so much good music is going on. Nothing quite sounds like this, though, right? So you got to, like, cast your mind back to think about how that goes. And I know it's an audio medium, but I did want to bring up the album cover. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm glad you've got some 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 content on this what's up with this okay there's some pastiche of drawings and collage and it looks like it's from a third graders trapper keeper (laughs) and but the main image i guess is french prostitutes waiting out on the street which i never even took note of and i've stared at it quite a bit that french prostitute cover was was enough to get it banned in franco's spain I mean, they really just look like women standing next to buildings. <laughs> but what about this handsome shirtless man? Tell me about him. I think that's an old movie star. It it really looks thrown together, guys. I mean, and to even hear them tell it, like I said, they aren't. They don't pull any punches <laughs> on their own stuff. Becker and Fagan later joked about their their much later album, The Royal Scam, that it had the most hideous album cover of the 1970s, save of course for Can't Buy a Thrill. <laughs> I just like I've always found their album covers to be a little dashed off. I don't know, or just just doesn't seem to fit with their aesthetic very well. Yeah, like this like Steely Dan baseball logo up here is. A oh, little I love odd. it. Just, yeah, it's like ropes. I know it's cool. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's cool, but like it doesn't feel. That would look damn cool on a hat. Yeah, on a baseball cap. Yeah. So I did get wind of what the original album cover pitch was that got rejected by the record company. 
it was a little girl looking into the window of a pornography shop. You, you can stop now. <laughs> <laughs> With the clerk staring menacingly back at her. Jesus. And apparently I think they went they did this photo shoot using Gary Katz's daughter. He like he was he was okay with that. And then they were like, oh no, this God. is too much. Jesus. I have so many questions. Seventies <laughs> were weird, man. I know there's like a, a Doobie Brothers album, same thing, where it's like there's some questionable age on some of the, the models and the inner liners, but Yeah, the blind faith covers. Okay. I feel like we have a lot to say about these songs. Let's get into the songs. Let's revisit the opening track, it's called Do It Again. guys say like the vibe of this song the song is like just overarching vibe what do you feel where does it take you dark it's dark and smoky i, th- I think it brings me right to the like a, to the desert or something Ooh, the desert. <laughs> i was gonna say and i think i even got called out for this and i had to turn in my music appreciation card that when the opening of this was playing out of context one time i perked up my head and i said oh is this santana <laughs> Oh, there you go. Right. Yeah. It's got that. And then you were fired. That, yeah. that, <laughs> that fish thing. Yeah. Listen, it's a great album opener. I have heard it a million times. Yeah. But yeah, to your point, Marty, I think that their lyricism is so strong. They start the out al- the first song, the first album, first line. In the morning, you go gunning for the man who stole your water. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> Contained in that line is a whole story setup. Isn't it? Ent- <laughs> That's I mean, it's hard, it's hard to figure out what any of these songs are about, but the lyrics are fucking I agree. awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I always thought this is about some kind of gambling addict who has to keep going back to the well, right? Because they do talk about Vegas. They talk about drinking yeah. a little bit. So this is the one I have a little snippet from Chris Gow about this song specifically, because this is the one that came. This was their debut single. It hit the charts. I think it reached number seven in the U.S., so well-performing single, Chris Gow says, it's a catchy, modified mambo with homogenized vocals that diverts one attention, one's attention from its tragic tale of a loser so compulsive he can't get himself hanged. Wow. <laughs> I need to reread these lyrics. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the compulsive loser is a really interesting way to put it and is sort of an interesting through line in all of the Dan lyrics. Maybe not all of them, but many of the songs are about the loser. Right. I feel that this song is a little bit maybe unjustly knocked down the ladder based both on Steely Dan's later catalog and just on the fact that it's not a complex song and they're known for complex songs. But I think if you can really try to cast your mind back, it is an awesome track with great lyrics, great groove, you know, and I was I thought it was interesting that at the moment the band members all disagreed. I have some notes about what they thought the best song was when the album came out, you know, before any success happened. But Walter Becker said this was his favorite cut when the release first came out. 
That's interesting. And so he played bass on this because I'm going yes. to direct your attention to the timestamp of 227, where he fat fingers and doesn't move to the next chord in the pattern. Perfectionist that is Donald Fagan. I was surprised that that squeaked through, and in my head, I'm like, "Oh, that's like the start of him becoming the obsessive compulsive." Where by the end of their career, they're like having mental breakdowns because things aren't perfect. Yeah, but I feel like they don't take themselves that serious. There's this video of them behind the board playing some of their albums, and and I think they play some. They might have played this song, but they highlight all different kinds of flubs they make. You know, oh, that's awesome. Okay, okay, that's the one where they're soloing uh, Michael McDonald. Back, back to you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But they what they did have was a lot of ambition. I saw, so I read. I also read this book of collected interviews with them effectively called any major dude or major dudes i think it was called and so there were a lot of stuff that was happening right around when the record was first released or right before it was released and they had this line from denny diaz saying saying something to the effect of this is the worst record this band is ever going to make and i'm like is he angry about it is that is he expressing confidence i'm not really sure what he's trying to go for there feels like a confidence statement so on on the way up so there's there's something else that I have neglected to mention so far, which was a change in my understanding this week. Because hearing the band talk at this time, I had always I had been operating under the assumption that Steelian was always 100% a Becker and Fagan jam, that they directed everything, they obviously wrote everything, and that the other musicians almost didn't matter. They were always great, of course, and they have great taste, but that they rotated constantly. That's not the vibe I was getting from hearing the band members talk about when this record was released. It seemed much more like they thought of themselves as a tight fivesome. Becker, Fagan, Skunk Baxter, Denny Diaz, and Jim Hodder, the drummer. And that that was the band that was going forward. And that is primarily the band that made the next record. And I think even the one after that as well. Oh, now, they are, there okay. are some exceptions. They did bring in some, some studio musicians. We'll talk about that. Some people outside the band to come in. But it had much more of a five-piece band vibe that I than I had previously thought. Well, there's like a, there's a core band. Yeah, yeah, sure. That's news to me too. I I had always just envisioned what you said, right? Them bringing in everybody, it's just those two. But that's interesting. It does still seem like like they directed how people would play, and that everyone was kind of cool with that. So I don't I don't know if that was the guys. I don't know if Becker and Fagan were slow playing these guys to a certain extent because they had brought them out to LA to be in their band and they didn't want to be like, Hey, you're just hired guns. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure what was going on. Cause you hear the guitar players talk about, yeah, if Fagan told me what to play and what the vibe he wanted was, then I just did it. Like as simple as that. And I like that. Yeah. That, in that same video, they have different guitar players doing solos, you know, including, including Donald Fagan. And they're kind of cycling through different, different solos, but the solo on do it again is is awesome and ridiculous it's, it's yeah, ridiculous yeah. and it's and it's memorable <laughs>
almost six minutes long, and it was like a radio. I mean, there must have been some edit they played on Jeez. the radio, but it was yeah, right, yeah. Right. It was a, it was a hit song. Exactly. The radio did not want to play the six minute song. I think they chopped it down to something closer to five minutes, which was still too long mm-hmm. for most stations. But they sort of held their ground, and there was some anecdote about people having to go to the to the radio station to ensure that they actually played the song all the way through. That was the only thing the record company would allow. So this is Danny Diaz on some kind of electric sitar. Yeah, I was going to say, like, it, this has got to be the best electric sitar solo of all time, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So many to choose from. Wait, you mean to tell me the... That's the electric sitar? So I've seen these things in guitar shops and played them before. They're pretty cool. They're guitars. It's a guitar, straight up. Right? Okay. But okay. then it has all the sympathetic strings that run like underneath like a sitar. So you sit, uh, okay. you just play okay. it like a guitar, no questions asked. But it then will have like these, you know, 12 sympathetic strings that are tied into the bridge. And that's where all that, I don't even know what I want to call it. Where that, that, all, that's where all that extra sound comes from. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good description. Yeah, it, I was surprised to learn that as well. But when upon close listening, you can sort of hear some microtonal elements or overtones or something. I was I was in a guitar shop once and they had one. It was in like great shape. It was from like the probably early seventies. I remember playing it, being like, "Oh man, this thing's so cool! I'm gonna buy this." And I was like, "What the fuck am I gonna buy an electric sitar? What in God's name am I gonna do with this?" <laughs> you could play this the, the yeah. solo in this. You just song have a pop cover it. band that only does songs with sitar. You got Norwegian Wood, Painted Black in the set list, and this one. <laughs> yeah, it's it's good. Okay, let's shuffle right along down the line to the second song on this record. It's called Dirty Work. Times are hard. Another song that, you know, you've heard a million, billion times. And I feel like the more I've gotten into Steely Dan's catalog, the more this song is kind of like would be a throwaway song for me. It just doesn't sound like them. I agree it's probably the least Steely Dan song on the album. I'll agree to that. But I do like the song. I think it's very well constructed and produced. It just doesn't quite belong with this band. I mean, not only are you missing the Fagan vocal, but it just sounds much more straight-ahead 70s pop. So I'm happy with it on a 70s playlist, for sure. But it sounds the least steely, if you will. I mean, if we're really critiquing now, too, I like it more as track three. I'm like, I want to do it again. Then I want you to like hit me again with Kings, <laughs> right? And then I want you to cool oh. it off with Dirty Work, right? <laughs> but now we're really, you know splitting hairs so this one was never released as a single so i'm not sure exactly what the story is of how it got into 
radio airplay because they released Do It Again and Reeling in the Years, which of course we know from classic rock radio. But this feels right up there in terms of stuff that gets played on the regular, and I'm not exactly sure how that happened. So guess who didn't like this song? Fagan. Fagan. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It is postulated that Fagan didn't want to sing this song specifically because he didn't even want it on the album. So this was probably oh, wow. from the shit notebook in their minds. <laughs> This song is too pleasing. What were you guys talking about? The live a live performance of this from some video that you saw? I was I specifically think of so there is a show from the seventies called Burt Sugarman's Midnight Special that was uh, some kind of variety show and they they had lots of bands on playing their hit songs. And they're usually not lip synced, a couple are, but they usually aren't. And so they're just fun little time capsules for anyone just to look up and poke around because everybody who's everybody from the 70s has been on this show and you just get to see the outfits and the live performance. And so at the very least, I remember there's a Reeling in the Years one where David Palmer is singing the lead on Reeling in the Years and Fagan is kind of hunched over his keyboard in the back on a riser like a penguin yeah, at the back of the stage, like sometimes the, he, he's being blocked by other people based on where the camera is. But when you occasionally see him, he looks miserable. <laughs> Definitely looks miserable. So they probably there's probably another <laughs> song too. I don't I can't remember if it was "Do It Again" or or if it would have been "Dirty Work." It probably would have been "Do It Again" because there are the singles. I can see how this song doesn't fit now, what you're saying with the rest of the album. Like if you were to try to pick out the one that doesn't look like the others, this would be it. But yeah, I I still like this song. I think that intro. Oh no, it's it's beautiful. I I sort of agree with you. Uh, I also have I've never connected the dot between Steely Dan and Crosby, Stills and Nash, and but I sort of could see how this almost feels like Our House or exactly. something. It's like exactly. It's like Steely Dan yes. doing Our House. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Those harmonies. Such edgier subject matter than Our House, though. I for, for right. sure way edgier. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll rep the song. I like the song a lot. I do, I'm I just saying that it doesn't exactly sound like the rest of their catalog. But I'll happily listen to the song anytime. And I think Adam was about to mention that intro. I don't feel like Fagan, the keyboard player, gets a lot of places to shine. We'll talk about one other song in particular where I think he does. But I feel like here, that that Wurlitzer intro is so tight. Yeah. Well, then there's an organ solo then sort of like offset. Solo's a little strong, but like, you know, offset by the saxophones. It is a very hip sort of intro. The, the horns that come in, in in the intro are really nice as well. They're very soft. They're very yeah. subdued. Like, they don't hit you in the face, and it, it eases you into the rest of the song. It's just a very nice touch. You know what I was sort of surprised about this week? This was on my list of three songs, Dirty Work, Brooklyn, and Fire in the Hole. I'm surprised Ben Folds never went to this well. It seems like an ace for him. He just takes some Steely Dan song, does it straight up, makes a grip load of money. Fagin, like, I don't know, hate fucks the money because he, he gets the money because he wrote the song. I don't know how it works. Like, it just seems like, seems like low-hanging fruit for him. <laughs> Phil, you're, you're a real ideas guy. <laughs> like reordering, reordering the tracks on the album and suggesting covers. I really... I really <laughs> I really hope Fagan uh, give me his notes on the reorder chats. <laughs> okay, let's keep it rolling right along to Reeling in the Years, song one of side two.
summer you can see it fading fast So you grab a piece of something that you think is gonna last Well you wouldn't even know a diamond if you held it in your hand The things you think are precious I can't understand Are you reeling in the years? Stowing away the time Are you gathering at the tea? What's the uh, subject matter here, you know? Is this like Donald Fagan's first like pervy song singing about 17 year olds and no well yeah but he's only 22 i guess so i guess he's only like 22 or 24 at the time i think i think he's talking shit on an ex-girlfriend for sure the sneer in the lyrics is palpable oh it's (laughs) great you don't need to understand english to get the mood (laughs) (laughs) and the way he crams so this this is one of those songs that always bothered me as a kid listening to this because the way he crams the lyrics in to like fit the line's not long enough for him to fit in what he says so he kind of sings like this in order to get everything in it doesn't really feel really good like the cadence that he has always bothered me and it's not until probably the last 10 years that i've kind of appreciated what he's doing here see i i called that out as an interesting rhythmic interplay the verse is doing this thing where the piano has all the emphasis on the upbeats or the and beats and his his lyrics kind of go against that by playing it a little straighter, but they also have to wait for that first emphasis point to to go by to even begin. Right. So I, I'm not saying you're wrong, but they are doing something that strikes your ear automatically as like two different things happening rhythmically at the same time. Is that called counterpoint or something? Like that? Is there a name for that? That could be rhythmic counterpoint. Yeah, yeah. yeah that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's cool. I like the guitar. I like how it starts with just a little quick guitar lick that goes that goes right into the song. It's just like they do all kinds of cool little interesting musical stuff, you know. I think this is like one of my top five guitar tones of all time. I think this is just as hip as like Foxy Lady. Like I just think this is such a cool like distorted bone dry. It sounds so cool. It's probably pl- I, w- I would bet five bucks it's a Telecaster plugged directly into the board. <laughs> yeah, cranked, cranked at twelve. So let's talk about that guitar playing. So that is not nobody's. Nobody's got five bucks on that. That's <laughs> sure. I'll bet you five bucks, Phil. Go to steelydangear.org. <laughs> Tell me. Sure, it's out there. This guitar player is not DS or Skunk Baxter. It's this guy Elliot Randall that Marty referenced earlier. He's the first. Maybe not the first, but he's one of the studio musicians they bring in for this, and this would become a hallmark of them. So let's talk about this dude for a second. One, this whole song is apparently, it's take two, but only because take one, they said, that's it, we got it. And then the recording engineer was like, I forgot to hit record. So then they did it a second time. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> right? And that's him coming in fresh. It's not like he's reversing with the band. He just listens to it once and then plays, right? But, so this dude was childhood friends with Skunk Baxter. He also played the solo on the Irene Cara song Fame, as in I'm Gonna Live Forever. So you could check that out. Also hot. Hotter than you remembered. Right. Because he's on it. And then another fun tidbit I found about this guy is that he was hired to lead the band for the original Broadway production of JC Superstar. Lots of ripping guitar there. That's your jam, yeah. But apparently, so he's like a studio monster, but apparently they said he's allergic to anything approaching a permanent gig. They tried to get him to join Steely Dan (laughs) as a touring guitarist or even to make their next record with them. And he's like, no, he just loves being a studio musician. I'll give you some other examples. John Belushi asked him to be the Blues Brothers musical director. He declined. Damn. 
Jeff Procaro asked him to be a founding member of Toto. He declined. It's <laughs> great decision making. But yeah, I mean, this this guitar tone and the notes he plays are iconic. They <laughs> they really are one of the best. I mean, who knows if it's not great decision making though? He might have been like. He's maybe been like drinking champagne in a pool in Malibu for the last 30 <laughs> yeah, years. Yeah, very like. good point. Very good point. I mean, this has to be the piece that comes up most often. I'm sure he's on some later Steely Dan stuff as well. I also saw a note in Wikipedia that said that this is Jimmy Page's favorite guitar solo. But I want the audience to know that I went ahead and watched the source video that was purporting to report that. And that's a very misleading statement, to say the least. The video is basically some guy in the modern era, in the last 10 years, playing snippets of guitar playing for Jimmy Page in sequence and going like, how do you rate this on a scale of 1 to 10? And the first one he plays is Muddy Waters. And Page goes, oh, yeah, that's a 10 out of 10, obviously. And the second one he plays is Page playing in the Yardbirds. And he laughs and he goes, I guess that's an 11 then. And then he plays this and he goes, oh, yeah, this is great. That's a 12. Reeling in the years. Elliot Randall, you know, had some sessions with him, whatever. It's for, for Somehow they extracted favorite solo. I think that's uh, very misleading. I've seen that re-reported many places. I feel like there's a lot of like misat- misattributions related to Jimmy Page and things he says in interviews, and I can't remember which what it was, but there's another podcast where you're talking about some Jimmy Page lore. I read what seemed like a very definitive Led Zeppelin biography that said he played on You Really Got Me. That's what it was. But then I read Dave Davies' memoir, and he said, absolutely not. That's what and it then was, I, right. Then I dug deeper, and I did find in the modern era Jimmy Page saying, no, I didn't. I think I think that's a basically how it went. And then Rob went and found him and knocked on his front door. And as the police were dragging him away, I was like, "Did you play it?" I must know. <laughs> uh, so so to be clear, though, we've got what's his name, Elliot Randall's taking this solo, but like the the solo stack, that's like a composed thing. It's doubled, right? right? It's someone yeah. else playing at the same time. Yeah, but part of it's like definitely like. You think it's an overdub? You think it's an Yeah, I'm talking like two. Yeah, yeah, two twenty. Yeah. Riff is is Baxter and Diaz, and okay, they play cool, it on yeah, that yeah. midnight special. You can see, and they they rip. I think we even referenced that exact performance before. Uh, yeah, they awesome. they awesome. sound great together. And, They're super talented, which like it makes you wonder why. I mean, I know the reason. The reason is just they were trying to lay down this solo, and Fagan's like, nah, not feeling it. Let's call this other guy for whatever reason, right? But obviously, the two other dudes are very capable. Something else that happens in this song after after that solo where it really picks up and you know a lot of these songs you get the tambourine and shaker and it kind of builds and builds and then it stops around uh, you know two forty five and it, it, I think they add like an extra beat of silence before going back into the third vor- verse and it, it's just really nice the way that they can just end the solo and start this you know shuffly next verse. I spent a lot of money and I spent a lot of time. Yeah, 
they do a lot of rad musical things. I think we could agree <laughs> no, 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 to that. I see, I, I see what you mean, Marty. It's like the drummer hits the snare, like that's the one beat. Yeah. But then there's the, but then they do the pickup. Yep, yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good catch. Adam, I got one for you. I this was like on the deep dive. If you if you go to about three thirty four. And and what's hilarious about this to me is it's the last time they actually do the big reeling in the years. One of the notes just like squirrels out on like literally <laughs> the last note, and I feel like I can just imagine like Fagan just like stewing, away, stewing away. Well, it's probably him. Damn it, that's part. <laughs> yeah. So if you you get a close listen there, it's just one really squirrely note right at the end. Are you reeling in the years? Stowing away the time. I mentioned the Proco rat pedal earlier on. I feel like for this might have been 15, 20 years ago, I bought one of those pedals and I feel like it was this song, the solo in this song that I was like, I need to, I need that sound. And I bought that pedal and you get that sound, but it only works if you're if you have Steely Dan music with you and you're playing leads, if you try to play anything else with a rat pedal, it just sounds like garbage. And so I think I sold it oh like a God. week later. Adam, you can't <laughs> say things like that. What are you talking about, Adam. dude? The oh rat God. is awesome. It's wild. There's no doubt about it. It's wild. <laughs> oh, I, I did not like that pedal. Listen, you can go from Steely Dan to Smashing Pumpkins, baby. All over the map. Maybe I didn't give it give it enough time. All right, can Proco Rat lovers write in and slam Adam? Please, absolutely. Bring it on, man. Yeah, a Reddit thread I just found very quickly says definitely a strat. So already Phil owes me five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly a fuzz face. I don't think they would have had they. They certainly wouldn't have had a rat back then, right? That would have been later. Oh, okay, okay. I don't know. I, the fuzz face part didn't sound definitive, but you you keep digging Phil, and you can bend on me uh, later. Uh, okay, sounds good. <laughs> All right, let's move it right along here. Oh, by the way, Fagan said of reeling in the years, it's dumb but effective. <laughs> So, you know, he seems like a happy person. I think it would be insufferable to sit with at a bar and try to have a beer. My God. They're not articulate, either of them, by the way. I listen to them on some other, like, podcasts and just clips of interviews, and they're just like, uh, blah, blah, blah. They're not, they don't talk well, for as well as they write. Okay. Oh, by the way, Adam, I you know, you read Imminent eminent hipster for the donald fagan thing i tried to read that yeah. this week i found it unreadable dude i listened to it and it was <laughs> donald fagan's voice reading it it was the most surly thing Jeez. ever you could hear the snark it was you know 112 pages of snark you just went off on like seven page tangents about 50s sci-fi movies you know like i don't care oh, about any of this right. crap <laughs> okay let's move it along to fire in the hole You know there's fire in the hole 
and nothing left to burn. I'd love to run out now. There's no way left to turn. No, no. With a cough. Every Steely Dan album has a couple duds, except for Gaucho, which is perfect from beginning to end. <laughs> I I believe that this song for me, in the context of the whole album, is a bit of a dud. Whoa, I feel the exact opposite. I think right. this is the best deep cut find Ooh. A song you might not have heard to get to. That piano intro is badass. And it, it, it wakes you up. Yeah, I think it's one of the jazziest tunes in the sense of being complex and weird. And so would it interest you guys to know that it's one of the oldest tunes in the book. Oh. Fire in the Hole was one of the ones they've been bopping around the longest or had written the longest ago, I think you get to see Fagan's piano chops in a really nice way, which he showcases more and more, I think, on future records. I did notice that the steel guitar, which is played by Jeff Skunk Baxter, is definitely not amazing. It feels like they just wanted to play with that toy, so I'm kind of surprised they let that stand. It's fine. You didn't hit any terrible notes, but... Are you talking about the solo at the end, or just throughout, through the yeah. whole, the one that's going through the kinda, whole song? Kind of throughout, but okay. but just the whole thing is just a little underwhelming for a steel guitar. I, I feel like the lyrics are kind of boring. I feel like the... I don't know. This song just kind of rubs me the wrong way. It's a little too aggressive for the sweet, soft, lovely rock of Steely Dan. I loved it in... Juxtaposition with Reeling in the Years. Because that's like a pretty straight ahead rock tune. And then you get this thing, which comes screaming in with this kind of syncopated piano line. It was v very cool in terms of Phil. Do you agree with the song placement on this one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel pretty good about this. Uh yeah, I do. I mean, I felt like when I got the when I got the focus list, I wanted to hot take like this. I don't like this song. But as I actually listened to the record and the focus list I couldn't actually I thought that was a ridiculous couldn't bring yourself to say that was a ridiculous position in all for honesty, me to take right? yeah, I, <laughs> I think in a weird way although it might not be as fully realized this does show where they're going more I think they wrote a lot more songs kind of in this mold and they just smoothed out a lot of the edges yeah because what they do it's a very long progression from when they start singing and they they do a Steely Dan thing, which is they somehow wind up working their way back to the starting chord yeah. of the progression. And you kind of don't realize how you got there. And then it's back. And it's kind of one of these like journey songs where they go through that, you know, what, four or five times. And every time it's, it's really cool. I, I would like to know yeah. what, what song you're thinking of or like what other songs you're thinking of in later on down the line. I was thinking of Gold Teeth. Yeah, I guess Gold Teeth is one that has a little bit of a little bit more punchy punchiness to it. it maybe like babylon sisters or something like that but that's more it's more well they smooth. got so smooth by yeah. the end too yeah. you know yeah. that i don't yeah. i almost don't think that's a fair comparison okay well i guess we're mixed on that one but that i thought that was uh one that i wasn't expecting to like as much as i did and i did i, I, I do think it's an interesting question what's the weak spot on the album like, I mean, if Marty, you're saying for you, it's fire in the hole. I guess I'd have to say it's one of them. Ch Change of the Guard's another one. Yeah. Change of the Guard feels like a five, do three dog night song. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I feel like this song has the most duds, actually. Midnight Cruiser's weird. None of them are offensive, but they just don't quite live up to the rest of Steely Dan. I just think they're, we yeah. got to separate those two things a little bit. They they don't they don't stand up against the other tracks in the catalog, but that's not exactly fair. Sure, sure, sure. 
Okay, but let's move on to what I actually thought was maybe not the dud, but it's my it's my low point because I have to pick a low point. The last Ooh. song on the record, Turn That Heartbeat Over Again. Hard disagree. This song is awesome. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, you fucked up on the title, guys. This is a really lame title. <laughs> it's weird. It's a weird format. It's lyrically bizarre. It has amazing harmonies. You get to learn what a crying jag is. Dude, that was one of my questions. What is that? It's, what it's is like, a jag and how uh, does one well, cry? Rob, Rob probably knows. because I think it just refers to a spade of crying. Yeah, it's like a fit. It's like a fit of uncontrolled crying. Hmm. I okay. think of this song, speaking of things that introduced me to, was the concept of a package store, which I had definitely had to look what up. What is that? It's like a liquor store, right? Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Listen, I don't not like this song. It, it has band on the run vibes, like a lot of songs smashed together into one. It just feels the most scattered, and in a way it's reflective of what's going on on the whole record, that they haven't 100% synced in. But yeah, does it have many of the Steely Dan hallmarks? Is it well-composed? Is it lyrically sharp? And are there great harmonies? Yeah, like, yes, of course. I'm not really calling it out as bad. I also think talking about, you know, Donald Fagan's relationship with his voice, I think he let, this is a song on the album where he really lets loose vocally and really kind of puts, yeah, himself, out, puts himself out there. He hits that high note. Yeah, you mean after look at, after yeah. look at my watch? Hey! <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the only good part of this song is at 440. They save the best part of the song. Actually, the only part of the song I like is at 440. It comes back in and they kind of like interrupt the rhythm in order to hit this big harmony. And then you've only got 10 seconds left. So it's perfect. It's nice. If I could start the song there and end the song this like is, a little... This is what I like about the song. I, and it's interesting because I feel like listening this week, this was kind of the one that sort of like rubbed me the wrong way at first. But the more I sort of like listen to the record again this week, I, it, it grew on me. And I, what I found interesting about it is, one, I think it's sort of like the dumbest pop song on the record. 
right? Which sort of like just makes it very easily listening and sort of fun. But it also has a very clear call to action, right? It's telling you to turn the record over again. And it's doing it in a very catchy, memorable way. And it's a way I just, <laughs> and I, that, that just struck me this week. That's that, interesting. Like, this has a subliminal message, a super liminal message. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Listen, I like the song. I like the whole record. I think the whole thing has a lot of charm to it in part because it humanizes these robots these studio robots called steely Dan <laughs> a bit more so to me it's an important part of their puzzle i wanted to mention that they they do get off some sincerely classic dan lines we've already mentioned two of them but the one i pulled out is this highway runs from paraguay and i've just come all the way <laughs> i just one. no one else could write that line i felt <laughs> okay i think we've chattered on enough about steely dance can't buy a thrill it's time for the most exciting part of the podcast to vote is this a must listen before you perish we're gonna send it first to adam i'm gonna say yes i honestly think you know i, I was looking at the track list on pretzel logic and i'm one of those people that just looking at song titles i can't load them into my head so for the purposes of what I'm going to say right now, I think that this is a good starting point for Steely Dan. I think it's consumable. If I was to give this to a, I don't know, a 25-year-old who had never heard of Steely Dan, I might start with this because it's a little poppy. It's got some different flavors. But again, a little hint of what you're going to see, a little bit of that Steely Dan is still buried in here. So I'm going to say, yes, you should definitely listen to this. All right. That's one yes. Let's go to Marty next. I love Steely Dan. They're amazing. I am familiar with their entire catalog. Unfortunately, I can't put this album on my on my thousand list, or your thousand list for that matter. There are at least four Steely, ba- Steely Dan albums that are better than this, and there's not room for every Steely Dan Dan. I keep saying Steely Dan Steely Dan album <laughs> on my thousand list. So I'm a no. Sorry. Harsh. Phil, what do you say? I agree with Marty. Not every Steely Dan record belongs on the list. I can live without Katie Lied. This one, on the other hand, can go on the list. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a thumbs up nice. for me. I'll give my thrill. Nice redirect. Yeah, I'm voting it on as well. I agree with the sentiment that Marty was expressing. This isn't my favorite. might not even be my fourth favorite. But I think it's important to study where the bands you love come from. And as I said just a few moments before, it has a certain charm to it being their debut album. So you both get reminded that they are human beings trying to figure out what they want to do, playing around with styles and songwriting tropes. And it also has many of the things you've come to love about Steely Dan and some truly classic tracks. So for those reasons, can't buy a thrill, baby. You're on the list. Congratulations, Donald Fagan. Take that award home and enjoy it (laughs) with what little time you may have left. Is he capable of experiencing joy is the question. Unclear. (laughs) If he has any questions about the you know, forthcoming 50th anniversary re-release. I'm happy to consult. And, yes. Track order, maybe some remixes. <laughs> yeah, he's, too, he's too busy touring with the Eagles right now. <laughs> oh, nice. You know, Phil, oh we God, managed go to, that. we somehow managed to not mention that time we went to the Beacon Theater to see them play the Royal Scam. Oh, yeah, that was epic. Where I, I do not regret that for one single second. It was a huge hassle to buy those tickets and fly out for that, but it was awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was great. Yeah. At, yeah. At, at that time in my life, it was a stupendous amount of money to spend on concert tickets. I've never regrets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Let's, uh, with that out of the way, let's go on to the next segment. Let's dip our hands into the old listener mailbag. I have a couple quick messages uh, from the listeners. There's some complaints, believe it or not. No. <laughs> so uh, anonymous listener, interestingly. Oh, wow. Anonymous listener says. Horrified. Will you present the full results of the listener requests? Here we are at the end of listener request month. They're asking if they'll present, if we'll present the full results. I'd be interesting to better know the audience. I was surprised that more people wanted OK Computer than, for instance, Abbey Road, Rumors, or Nevermind. Listen, I'm going to field this one, being the keeper of the vote scrolls. Short answer is no, because it would literally take an entire hour to read about all the records, to read the titles of all the records that got recommended to us. <laughs> we were truly blown away. And you're right. I would have thought that Abbey Road or other similar ones would have gotten a little more love. But the truth is we got a lot of obscure picks. As it happens, Nevermind got exactly one vote, as did Rumors and Abbey Road, whereas things like OK Computer got multiple votes through the law of numbers, not tons and tons, but significantly more, I can assure you, than Abbey Road. So there you have it. We'll get to Abbey Road eventually, I'm sure. Hey, who did that again? Whose band is that? Uh, who knows? Okay. Next up, Dominic from Oakland writes, he's referring to... I think it was last week or a couple weeks ago there, a professor from Tennessee told me I was mispronouncing the word progenitor consistently. And I, I gave that professor credit, obviously Dominic writes in bruh. And then he quotes emails that he sent me with date stamps telling me this exact same thing that I <laughs> neglected two different times. Oh, so thank you. He says, give credit where credit's due, but really I love the show. Keep up the good work. You're totally right, bruh. You got you you got it. I missed that. I blocked it. I thought you were talking about Phil. I don't know what was going on. Okay. I'm just picturing this poor guy who hears who hears you say that he like throws his phone across the room God or punches the steering wheel. You son of a bitch, I can't I mean I didn't fact check it, but apparently he wrote me two separate emails months apart, <laughs> both including this issue. And it was Dominic, and customer we love service you. did not address it. <laughs> Okay, we have one one last one here. It's Nick from Manchester. He writes, Hi, complainers. I managed to catch up on a couple of your older episodes this weekend, air Moon Safari and the infamous Nana Cherry episode, which I oh. thoroughly enjoyed. <laughs> I think there was a bit of UK versus US thing with that album because she was huge over here in the UK back in 1989. I've always had a soft spot for Buffalo Stance. <laughs> I'm sorry. And it's true. He wrote this. My wife and I both try and fail to sing all the lyrics and including rapping over man child. <laughs> Nick, I don't even know what to say, man, but good for you. Enjoy. <laughs> he also goes on to say the air episode had some classic Phil moments. Everyone loves Phil where you kept talking about the bass player from the first track, even though you explained multiple times it was the same guy on every track. <laughs> hey, man, it was a hot take. <laughs> He says uh, they used to play those air videos on Russian version of MTV when I lived in St. Petersburg back in the day. And it always puts me in a happy place. Okay, enough rambling. Keep up the good work, boys. Thank you so much for writing Thank us. Thank you, yeah. Yeah, we really appreciate it. We really get a kick out of those. Keep sending them our way. We love it. We read everything. 
And if you want to tell us what we got wrong or right or tell us we mispronounced the word or call out one of us for not paying attention to the podcast or whatever it might be, you can do that. We would love you to at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. And last but not least, we need to get our homework for next week. Are you guys excited? Oh, yeah. Always. I am very excited. The Albinator has been touring with a pop band. It's very surly right now. <laughs> for the last month, hasn't really been getting its rocks off musically. But it's back now. And it's going to tell us what we're going to be listening to next week. So without further ado, let's give that bad boy a spin. Do you think it's been harboring some resentment? I'm really interested to see when the clicking stops exactly what it is going to throw at us. It might be a little pissed off. I don't know. You know, I think it might be that might be playing out over the next several weeks. We'll have to see, you know, like an like an angsty teenager. It it might kind of not want to get to the point right away. Right, right, right. Next week, we will be listening to. Fleet Foxes debut album. Fleet Foxes. I'm familiar with that record. Think there's some harmony on on that one. <laughs> yeah, I've seen Phil play a couple of these tunes. I think. Nice. Okay. Well, that's going to be a a fun one. I'm sure someone's going to shit on it, Marty. I'm looking oh, at you, yeah. maybe. <laughs> but uh, I I think it'll be a pleasant listen at the very least. So join us, dear audience, listening to the first Fleet Foxes record, the self titled one. And join us here next week to dissect it and tell the story. For 1001 Album Complaints, I've been Rob. I'm Adam. I'm Phil. I'm Marty. Boosh. Boosh.